Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. We'll read Psalm 45, verses 8 through 17. Hear now the reading of God's inspired word, given by his spirit and profitable for us. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters are among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glories of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your guidance and instruction for us here on this earth and the house of our pilgrimage. We pray, O oh God, that you might teach us, instruct us through the sacred scriptures, enable us to have the knowledge of God both now and forevermore. Teach us especially through this passage and others that we'll consider today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at the law of marriage in Scripture, considering first in Romans chapter 7, the springboard for this study, looking there at the law of the husband over his wife, and going back all the way to the original creation order, looking at the order of marriage there, and then looking at the patriarchs and their lives and the doctrine of marriage taught in Genesis, and then looking at the law of Moses for two weeks, from Exodus 21 especially, and also from Leviticus 18. I'm going to give one sermon to the prophets, so we're going to look at a couple passages, one from the Psalms and one from Malachi. And then, God willing, next week, or two weeks following, we will consider the Gospels, and then finally we'll consider the epistles of the Apostles, and then get back into Romans. Much could be said, much more could have been said about the Law of Moses, but I wanted to move back into the book of Romans, so we'll give one to the prophets, maybe two to the Gospels, and maybe two to the epistles, concerning the doctrine of marriage in Scripture. So here in Psalm 45, this is a song of loves, we are told, concerning Solomon as a type of Jesus Christ. And we know this on apostolic authority, that this Psalm 45 is not merely talking about Solomon, but also about the son of David, greater than Solomon, even our Lord Jesus Christ. There are things said here concerning Solomon that are not appropriate for a creature. Verse 6, for example, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Is that true of Solomon? No. Is it true of the son of David? Yes. And so we see, actually in Hebrews 1, it quotes this passage saying that this concerns our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to give us a paradigm. This is the same paradigm the Apostle Paul uses. That is, that when we read about marriage or other types of the kingdom of Christ in the Old Testament, we may use them in two ways. One is, we may use them as prophetic concerning the spiritual truths that they represent, and two, we may use them in a practical way, in a way that applies to our lives, and I will try to use this passage in both ways. Does it concern the proper ordering of a household in marriage? Yes. Does it concern the Lord Jesus Christ and his church? Yes. And this is what we must understand. It's not one or the other. God's intention is that we use this passage and others like it together. 
And we see this especially Hebrews 1. We also see it in the book of Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul compares the relationship of Christ and the church to the husband and the wife. Does he denigrate the doctrinal portion about Christ and the spiritual truths? No. Does he leave aside the practical application to husbands and wives? No. He does both. And this is one of the glories of our Reformed faith, is that we're not given an option, would you like to be strong doctrinally or strong practically? The answer is yes, both. We don't want one to the exclusion of the other. And so then, let us consider Psalm 45. Notice here, verse 9, King's daughters are, were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Now Christ is a king, but who is it that is at his right hand? Well, it's his bride, the church. He rules over all things for the church, we're told. And we'll see this in Ephesians 4, God willing, next week. But here notice, the wife is there to the right hand of the king. The queen is there at his right hand. Now, Christ reigns, but the church rules under him as a kingdom of priests. In fact, the church judges, we're told, angels at the end of time. So there is a delegated authority Christ has given to his church. So also in marriage. Wives are second in command. They have real authority. They are in subjection to their husbands, and then they rule over their children. So this is important to understand. And then notice verse 10. Appealing to the daughter who's to be married to Solomon, hearken, O daughter, and consider in, and incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Now this we saw from Genesis chapter 2 is the law of nature. There it addressed the man, didn't it? It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. We saw that. Here, notice, the same is true of the woman. Now, the Bible didn't need to spell this out in explicit detail, but it did. You could logically say, if the man has to leave his father and mother, how much more the woman, right? Because she comes under a new chain of authority. But if it addresses the superior to leave behind his family, of course it applies to the inferior. Duh. It's logical. But scripture says to the wife here, listen carefully, incline thine ear. When the Bible does it, it's pounding again and again and again. It's like emphasizing by raising the voice. Listen carefully. This is important. Forget, he says. And this word forget carries with it the idea of leaving something behind so that you cease to care for it or concern yourself with it. It's not your business any longer to worry about your old family. But, he says, forget also your own people. Now, the literal context is the daughter of Pharaoh. And she has to leave the Egyptians so that she may be united together with Solomon, king of Israel and of Judah. So she literally had to leave behind Egypt, not remember it, forget about it, and the household of the king and say, I'm not part of that family any longer. I note then that the creation of a new household creates a bond as strong as nature, nay, stronger than nature. The natural tie is to your father and your mother, right? To your own people, your flesh and blood, your kindred. He says, forget about them, leave them behind, as if you did not care for them, so that you might give yourself wholly to your, to your husband, to your king in this case. Those then who are to be married, recall this command. Ladies, girls, if you grow into wives, forget your old household. Leave it behind you. Forget thy father's house, he says. And then for all of us, we who are united to Christ, forget the old man, the old Adam, your old people, 
your old ways and works, your comforts and pleasures of the flesh, leave them behind. Do not care for them. Concern yourself with what? The kingdom and righteousness of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Notice the happy result of a wife who does these things. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Note here, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, or because of this that I just told you, in this case, so as, here's the result, he will greatly desire thy beauty. A wife distracted and carried away by her former life and connections loses her desirability as a wife. A wife who is concerned with her husband and their new family will be desirable to the husband. But she who is distracted loses the charm of a wife. So also with believers. If we are concerned as Lot's wife with worldly things, we will be turned into a pillar of salt, so to speak. She literally, we figuratively. Good for nothing, no motion, no action, no growth. That's what happens if someone is turned into salt. Notice the psalm goes on. Not only the encouragement of the desirability by the husband, but also the status of the husband. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Do you remember when we looked at the patriarchs? What did Sarah call her husband? Adon, my owner, my master, my king, my lord. Same word here. He is thy Adon, thy lord. Worship thou him. Now this word worship means a gesture of reverence or, or homage. In religious matters, it's called idolatry when you worship a creature. In civil matters, it's called respect. You show honor to him. You fear him is the word that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians 5, as we'll see in a month or so. But here notice, he is thy Lord, worship thou him. Now the outward gesture of respect is to be matched by the words and the deeds. The Bible never says, just do the external gesture, just do the outside thing, but you don't have to worry about the rest. As long as you've got the outside covered, you're good. That's called formalism. That's called hypocrisy. I have known women in my day who made outward gestures of respect toward their husband, but then you listen to them talk about their husband. And you see how they respond to his authority. And the outward gesture that they have, well, it doesn't really mean much. It actually aggravates the sins because they're pretending to be submissive to their husbands. But actually, they don't. They don't submit to him at all. So this is a danger that Satan introduces. Oh, you've got the gesture. You're fine. No, that's not enough. It's not merely enough to do gestures of reverence and homage. It must be matched by deeds and by words. I note then this doctrine that marriage is not an equal partnership. We've seen this before. Rather, it is a glorious reflection of Christ and his church. Marriage is not an equal partnership. It is a glorious reflection of Christ and his church. Now, the error of our modern times and of the papacy is to make the husband and wife on equal terms. Did you know that if the church can legislate and judge you according to its own laws, that that makes the wife equal to the husband in authority? In fact, it makes her greater than the husband who already gave us his authoritative commands, that is Christ. And therefore, if now the church can give us new commands that contradict the commands of Christ or that supersede or that are on an equal obedience level to Christ's commands, guess what we have? We have satanic chaos. We have egalitarianism. The husband and the wife are on equal planes. Is that what it says here in this psalm? No, of course not. 
It's not taught in nature, as we saw from Genesis 2. It's not taught by the example of Sarah. It's not taught in the law of Moses. It's not taught by the Psalms. It's ridiculous. The practical outworkings of a marriage must never become democratic. Or worse, where the wife take the reins of power over her husband. Rather than paying homage, she demands obedience. You see this in men. Oh, let me ask my wife if I can do this. Well, is she your boss? Does she give you leave to do things? Must you go to her? Oh, please, please let me do this. Please, honey, can I please just do this? That's how many men grovel at their wives. He is thy Lord and worship thou him. And the man says, no, that's not true. She is my lady and I will bow and do reverence and homage to her. Oh, yes, dear. Yes, dear. This is an inversion, a perversion of the order of nature. This exhortation then, wives, recall your place in marriage. Your husband is your Lord and master. Do not imbibe the spirit of the age. Be cautious in your attitudes, your speech, and your behavior. Do you want your husband to greatly desire your beauty? Now, I commend something to you. A man named R.L. Dabney, he wrote a, a little article years ago, late 1800s, called Women's Rights Women. Women's Rights Women. And in this article, he prophesies that if the current idea of women getting the franchise, that is the right to vote, if that continued on and it made its way throughout society, he said that women would lose their charm to the men. Because men who see themselves as the superior in the marriage, they see their wife as someone there to care for and look after her and protect her and provide for her. But if they see the woman as the equal of the man, we're on the same footing here, guess what they tend to think? Competition. She's my competition now. She's no longer the person that I owe these duties toward. She is now someone that we're fighting for mastery over the home. And do you know what he said would happen? When a woman grows old, the husband would say, I have no use for her anymore. I'm going to find another competitor who's better looking, who's younger, who doesn't have the problems with the body from bearing children. I'll find myself a new wife. Guess what happened after egalitarianism set in in American society? Oh, I don't like her anymore. I'm going to go find a new one. I'll find another girl younger than her who won't be so mouthy to me, who might do what I say. Another competitor who's better at competing than she is, you see. If you want your husband to greatly desire your beauty, what then is the duty you owe to him? Not to live according to the lie of feminism, where you have the man thinking of you rather as a self-exalting woman who is presumptuous and mouthy. Any man want a woman like that? Of course not, unless they're lying to you so that they can get what they want out of you. Little snakes who pretend like they're comfortable with these sorts of things. Let us then, all of us, whether men or women, boys or girls, recall the lordship of Christ. See, this is the marital explanation of the greater spiritual truth. Christ is the head of his church, just as the husband is head of his wife, if you take away the headship of the husband over the wife, guess what you do to the headship of Christ over his church? You destroy it. You vitiate it. The foundation on which the apostle argues, you have destroyed. So we must keep that foundation. And the foundation leads us to this higher truth. Christ is my Lord. I must worship him. Christ owns me. Christ commands me. Christ regulates my life, my speech, my choices, my worship. I must honor and reverence him. That is the higher truth here. Both being applicable to uh, certain parties and their various circumstances in the first place, but this applicable to all. Notice verse 12. He says, And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Do you know that the city of Tyre was very rich. And if someone from Tyre brought you a gift, probably the daughter of the king of Tyre, do you think it would be some shoddy piece of garbage she'd bring to you? No. 
This gift would be glorious. It would be pricey. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. A woman submitting to her husband will be exalted by God with favor, with glory, with exaltation, with joy, verse 15, and with a good name, verse 17. I note then this doctrine, a woman who fears God and reverences her husband will be exalted and blessed. A woman who fears God and reverences her husband will be exalted and blessed. This serves as a rebuke to the modern feminist lies. How can you be a joyful, honored, respected woman? Well, feminism says, act like a man. Pretend to be a man. Try to be the man's equal in society or in the marriage. That's how you get a good name. That's how you get honor. Is that what God says here? No. He says, by reverencing your husband, by calling him your Lord, by forgetting your old people and your family and your father's house and cleaving unto your husband, that's how you get a good name. That's how you get honor. That's how you get glory and joy. Modern feminists are miserable. They are not what God designed them to be, and therefore they will never be happy. And they fight and kick and scream against God's design for their life. Are they going to be happy? Are they going to be content? Are they going to be honored? Perhaps Satan will give you accolades. You might get a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and you'll get the pit of hell to go with it. What good is that? This exhortation, then, ladies, embrace the calling God has given you and the nature he has made you to have. Embrace the calling God has given you and the nature he has made you to have. God has designed the female psyche, the female soul, the female body, the female mind, the female will to be different from the man's. Are there things that are similar? Of course. But there are also specific differences that identify the nature of woman from the nature of man. It's not just arbitrary that God says, well... I want you to do this and I want you to do that. I don't have any reason for it other than my own will. No. God has commandments and roles because of the specific difference in nature. It is not, therefore, arbitrary as some feign, but rather is designed by God. Fighting God and the nature he has created you to have will bring disaster and has brought disaster in our day. Please open to Malachi chapter 2 on page 957 of your pew Bibles. Malachi chapter 2, and we will conclude this on the prophets and marriage with Malachi 2, verses 11 through 16. Starting then at verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again. Covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet, is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away... For one covereth violence with his garment, 
saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Here we have a most important text. The former in Psalm 45, largely addressing the wife. Here he addresses the husband. Judah hath dealt treacherously. Now this word treacherous means that someone has caused you to rely upon them. They might have sworn an oath. They might have promised that they'll do something. And then when the moment of truth comes, when you need them the most, where are they? Gone. And not just gone. You find out that they've done something to harm you when they were supposed to be defending you, for example. Judas Iscariot was treacherous. At the very moment where Christ is about to suffer and he needs assistance from his friends, what is Judas doing? Well, he's bargaining for his life. Figuring out how to get the people there so he can get his 30 pieces of silver. That's what he's doing. Treachery. Judah, you've done treacherously. You're faithless. You depart from your promises. The engagements that you've made to God, you have not done them, he says. Furthermore, you've profaned the holiness of the Lord. Now, profanity means to make what, what is sacred into a common thing. As the son of Nebuchadnezzar took the holy vessels from the temple and he used them for a drunken feast, he took a holy thing and he profaned it. And God takes that seriously. You take the Lord's day, you use it for common uses, you're profaning the Sabbath, we say. So they had profaned God's holiness. How is that? Well, notice, they are the people that God sanctified, are they not? He made them a holy people. He said, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you are to be holy in all manner of conversation, Peter says. Everything you do... You are to think of God first. What pleases God in this circumstance? Now, what are they doing? They're marrying against God's commandments, the daughter of a foreign deity. Do you know that the heathens are considered to be children of their gods? Just as we are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, so the pagans are descended from their father. De the devil or the demon that they worship. They are the children of those gods. Now, God says, ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Shall I then take the member of Christ in the temple of the Holy Ghost, Paul says, and make it a member of a harlot? Or take it to Belial and eat at his table? Is that possible? No. That's why we destroy idols. We don't engage in mixing with them and figure out what's the common ground between darkness and light. There isn't one. So we don't mix them together, God says. They married the daughter of a strange God. This is how they profaned the holiness of the Lord. God said, be holy in how you marry. They said, no, thank you. We'll do what we please, not what you say. Our confession of faith says the following. Such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Notice there. If we profess this true reformed religion, that puts a lot of people off the menu, doesn't it? Last week we talked about consanguinity, and we talked about affinity. It puts people off the menu. You can't choose that person because of these reasons God says. Here God says something else. If you profess the true religion, do not consider these people. They're off the menu. Don't put them on there and say, oh, but I can change them. Oh, but I can cause them to come to the Reformed faith if I just, you know, let him snuggle up to me a little bit. Maybe he'll snuggle up to the Reformed faith. No, he won't. Rather, he will seek to gratify his own desires and keep his old idols such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life 
or maintain damnable heresies. Lots of people off the list, aren't there? That's God's intent. I exhort young people, choose your marital companions wisely, very wisely. Consult the judgments of your parents and of your elders. And especially girls, submit to the determination of your fathers. What does he say? That is your will. Submission means, I will come under the command of this person. In this case, your father. But especially be holy in your marrying, not profane, not seeking your desire or worldly advancement, but rather the kingdom and righteousness of God. That's what he's saying. That's how they profaned his holiness. My marriage is my business, God. Stay out of my bedroom. Stay out of my marriage. And God says, no, be ye holy in your bedroom. Be ye holy in your marriage. Do not profane the holiness of God by marrying the daughter or the son of a strange God. This is a rebuke to missionary dating, as they call it. Oh, I'll convert him by dating him. I will continue to encourage his sin, and somehow that will save him. His sin is to desire a Christian woman he has no right to, because he's unholy. No. Same with men. Oh, I can, I can change her. I'll bring her in. No, you won't. She'll continue in her false god. That's how it goes. You dishonor God in the choice of your spouse, God will lightly esteem you in your marriage. No missionary dating, no, re- no low standards of religion, no mingling what is true with what is false in marriage. And notice, God takes this so seriously, he says he'll cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar. You know what a master is? Someone who teaches. Well, what's a scholar? Someone who learns. You got the highest, you got the lowest. Nobody's going to escape God. You don't get a special exemption because you're a master in Israel. You don't get a special exemption because you're an inferior and lower in society. No exemptions from God's rule here. Well, I'm a priest in the tabernacles of Jacob. I offer the offerings of the Lord. You think you're going to escape because you're a pastor or a deacon? Or in those days you're a Levite or a priest? You're going to escape the judgment of God? No! You're not going to escape. And then, oh God, we're victims. How could you not receive our offerings anymore? (laughs) They're weeping. Notice verse 13. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. They must have been pretty sincere. Can you cry when God doesn't answer you? Well, they were crying. God wouldn't listen to them. God didn't receive their worship. They're very sincere, very emotional. It must be a revival of the Spirit. Look at him crying all over the altar. What does God say? Get out of here. Filth, be gone. I'm not going to receive your offerings. You can cover my altar with tears all you want. I'm not going to listen to you. Why? Why is that? Because they didn't listen to him. He said, don't marry the daughter of a foreign god. They said, I'll do whatever I want. Then they come to worship and he says, sorry, you can't do whatever you want. Stay away. You don't belong here. I'm not receiving from your hand with any goodwill what you offer to me. Disobedience to God's laws makes worship unacceptable to God. Listen to this proverb. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. Whoa, 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 Solomon. What are you talking about? Doesn't God always hear us when we call to him? No. He might hear you and say, that's sick. That's disgusting. You have the gall to come before me and you won't listen to me? You won't obey my commandments and you think I should answer your prayers? God says, no, I'm not listening to you. It's an abomination that you hypocritically come before me and ask me for things when you will not submit to my commandments. 
Here they're crying. Oh, God, why don't you hear us anymore? We're such good people. We're so righteous. We do all the things that you tell us in worship. But, you know, it's my marriage, my choice. Stay out of my bedroom, please. I don't need your laws on my body. No, God's not going to listen to that kind of people. He's going to judge them. Let us then be holy in all manner of conversation. Would we have God to hear us? Be holy. Do what pleases the Father. When you sin, repent. Come before him humbly, not exalting yourself. I'm not going to listen to you, God, but you better listen to me. When I come and offer my prayers to you, you better hear what I have to say. No, sorry. It's the other way around. We must listen to him and beg him to please hear us. We must do what he commands. Would we have a favorable hearing? Would he receive our offering of worship with goodwill? Then we must offer it in obedience to all his commands. Note verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? Why, God? Why won't you listen to us? They still haven't gotten it through their skulls. They're just like us, right? Why? That's what they keep on saying this. Wherefore? Then he goes on. The Lord hath been witness, he says. What is a witness? You remember the pile of stones when Jacob is there with Laban? And they make a big pile and they call it the pile or the heap of witness. Right? You remember that? It heard the words we said. God will judge and even the stones will judge because they heard the words that we uttered. Who was there when you got married to your wife? Who was there when you swore to be faithful to her? God was, he says. I shall be witness. I heard the words that you swore between you and your wife. He knows that you didn't keep what you said. He knows your treachery in abandoning your promise. Yet, he says, though I'm here witnessing, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. What is a companion? The Geneva notes say as the one half of yourself. Remember that? The companionship. The two, he says, shall become one. You are a companion with your wife. The two are one flesh. You are joined together by God. She is thy companion. You may think not. You may have moved on to the next one, but she is thy companion, he says. And what is more, she is the wife of thy covenant. What covenant? You remember the one where you took an oath and you pledged before God, calling upon his name, God is my witness, I will be till death do us part. Your faithful husband? Yes, she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. This is the error. Verse 15. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Did not he make one? The answer is implied in the question. Yes, God made one. What is he talking about? Well, he's hearkening back to the original creation. How many women were produced for Adam? One. How many Adams were there for Eve to be produced for? One. You just made one Eve, that's it. Here you are, you have this other part of yourself, your companion. You have the wife of the covenant that you made. And God made one at the beginning of creation as your companion and wife of covenant, and yet you desire more. This is treachery. This is abandonment of your troth and your pledge. 
God had the residue of the Spirit. He had the excellence by which he could have created untold numbers of wives as the heathen feign imagine, as the Muslims feign. I'll get 70 virgins when I get to my fake paradise. He could have done that. He could have created 70 wives in a harem for Adam, but he made one. That's all he made. Just one. Calvin notes, Consider within yourselves whether God, when he created man and instituted marriage, gave many wives to one man? By no means. Ye see then that spurious and contrary to the character of a true and pure marriage is everything that does not harmonize with its first institution. Now, spurious is a very interesting word. It means when something pretends to be genuine and true but actually is false. When something gives the appearance of marriage but is not actually marriage, it is spurious. It is not genuine. It does not accord with what God originally said when he made man and he gave him one wife as his companion. And why, pray tell, did God make just one wife for Adam and just one wife for every other man? Why? Why did he do that? That he might seek a godly seed. Now this, as I mentioned earlier, is the seed of God. That's what God's design was in monogamy, as we call it, in the marriage of one man to one woman. That's what his design, that's what he seeks, a seed most excellent as of God himself, as the chariots of God are most excellent chariots. The cedars of God are most excellent, high and big These are the seed of God, he says. That's what he wants. Descendants who excel in holiness. As in Ephesians 3, we saw the fullness of God, that most excellent fullness of all spiritual wisdom. So God wants an excellent offspring of godly children. I note then this doctrine, corruption of marriage, from God's natural order, are assaults on the Creator. Corruption of marriage from God's natural order, or corruptions of marriage, are assaults on the Creator. It's fighting God, making war against God. It is treachery, it is lawlessness, it is profaning His holiness. Note also, not only is it an assault on God, it is a corruption of the good of men. God wants a holy seed. Do you want a holy seed? Do you want a most excellent seed of God? Well, don't corrupt his order, or he will judge. Sin corrupts nature. Grace perfects nature. That's why God promises to be God to us and our children in his covenant of grace. His goal is to seek godly seed, a seed of God. This exhortation then, let us work toward holy marriages, not interfaith marriages, not multiplying wives. You know when a man gets divorced unlawfully? And he goes on to the next woman, that that's polygamy too? You can have two wives at once, or you can have two wives two years apart. In God's sight, it's the same. If you are divorced unlawfully, you may not marry again. God hates this. Let us work toward holy marriages, not multiple wives, not disordered and lawless self-seeking, but rather glorifying God, seeking to build His kingdom. Now, verse 16, perhaps the only verse we've ever heard from Malachi 2. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that ye deal not treacherously. Here notice, the Lord hateth putting away. He hates this, what they're doing. They are putting away the wife of their youth. They're moving on to a new one. God hates it. 
It is a corruption. It is a decay of the lawful institution of marriage. God desires holiness and a seed of God. And this is why he hates putting away. He hates both the act of lawless divorce and he hates the sins that lead to divorce. He hates both. Divorce destroys what God built. Divorce corrupts what God designed for holiness and a seed of God. This is why God hates it. It's against his purpose. It's against the natural order. It's against his commandments, the things leading up to it. Matthew Henry notes this. Let those wives that elope from their husbands and put themselves away, those husbands that are cruel to their wives and turn them away, or take their affections off from their wives and place them upon others, yea, and those husbands and wives that live asunder by consent for want of love to each other, let such as these know that the God of Israel hates such practices, however vain men may make a jest of them. Yeah, people joke about this. Oh, we live in separate bedrooms. We live in separate houses. What does God say about that? I hate it. He designed the marriage to be a place of love, of unity and cooperation for the kingdom of God. And what have you made it? Your own selfish way. Oh, I need to elope from my husband. He's such a meanie. I'm leaving him. I'm going to go somewhere else because after all, he's so selfish (laughs) and I'm not. By leaving my husband and breaking my covenant, I'm not selfish. Or are you? This is what women do. Leave their husbands and men cruelly turn them away, he says. Take their affections off them and look at images in magazines or on their phones or computers. God hates this. This is not funny. This is wicked and lawless and destructive of a seed of God. The kingdom of God will make progress when we have good and lawful marriages. One man, one woman, no shenanigans, no wickedness, no lawlessness. Notice also, he covereth violence with his garment. Now this is a rather enigmatic passage. It's hard to understand. What exactly is this talking about? Is it that the man uses violence to beat up his wife? and then he puts a cloak over it, that's possible. Is it that he uses violence by bringing a second woman into the marriage and he hypocritically covers over it as if, oh, there's nothing wrong with this, Abraham did it, Jacob did it, I mean, come on, you're going to blame the patriarchs? You're going to say they were ungodly? Many different understandings. What is it, the covering of violence, what is he talking about? Now, it seems to me that the context requires that we consider sins of husbands against their wives contrary to marriage. That seems to be the context. What sort of violence is exercised by a husband toward his wife in this context here? Well, it's obvious. Putting her away. God hates putting away, he says. He also hates the marrying of a foreign daughter, a foreign god, So there's no interfaith, no easy divorce, and you could say, wherefore made he one, says, no polygamy, no additional women, no lawless divorce and marrying a new woman or having two in the same household. These are all violence against the oath that he took. It is harsh treatment of his first wife. She is thy companion. She's the other half that makes you one flesh. God created one for Adam and one for you. Matthew Poole notes, Neither your divorces nor your polygamy may with safety be practiced, for God hateth both. Don't put a cloak on your lawless divorce. Don't put a cloak on your polygamy. God hates them. This doctrine then, Divorce, polygamy, and other corruptions of marriage are hated by God. He says he hates them. 
He does not approve of them. He does not delight in them. He does not say there will be blessings that follow them. No, he hates them. I note then this rebuke, easy divorce for either men or women are both corruptions of God's original institution. Now in Malachi's day, in the Pharisees' day, when we'll look at this in the Gospels, the question was, May a man divorce his wife for any cause? That's literally the question they asked. You know, can I come home sometime? And she just doesn't look right. She's a little mouthy today. The Talmud asked, what if she burns your food? You could divorce her. That's what they said. The rabbi said, you can divorce your wife if she burns supper. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? That is the pharisaical notion on behalf of men. Now, we have modern-day Pharisees on behalf of women. Oh, you can divorce your husband as long as you can prove that he's a narcissist. As long as you can prove he's got borderline personality disorder. Oh, I talked to a psychiatrist. I read it on, read it on a website. He's definitely a candidate for being divorced. It says, don't go with an angry man or you'll be like him. My husband's angry. I'm going to go away from him because I don't want to be like him. See, I have the Bible. <sighs> Makes me righteous. I can do this. No, you can't. It's a modern-day Pharisaism. Easy divorce, whether for men or for women, are corruptions of God's original institution. Let us then stop our ears against the lawless chatter of men or women. Oh, I don't need marriage. It's a trap. I don't need women. I can just be a playboy, have my girlfriends, you know, whatever. No big deal. If I get married, I'm going to be trapped and have financial obligations and they'll take everything from me. This is the lawless trap of men. Women, the other lawless trap I just mentioned. Is God pleased with either of these lawless, wicked chatters? No. God says, I have made you one. I have joined you together by a covenant. I'm witness between you and the wife of your youth. And if you want to come and offer worship to be accepted by me, you had better listen to what I say. This is what God says. Oh, but we're victims. Wherefore, Lord, why won't you listen to my prayers? I'm such a good guy. Because you're wicked. God heard your oath. He knows you're supposed to do what he commanded you, and you're saying, I don't have to. Let us then carefully consider our ways. And as young people, I urge you, especially young people, be very careful in your choice of spouse, that you may build the kingdom of God rather than tear it down with your own hands. And thus far, the explanation of the word of God, the law of marriage, and the prophets.